Hello everyone, this is uh, Stavros Yanuka and welcome to another episode of Wise Words. Uh, my guest on this episode is Shannon May. Uh, Shannon is the co-founder of Bridge International Academies, the largest chain of private schools in Africa. Uh, Shannon is an anthropologist by training and was inspired to enter the education space by her unplanned experience as an English teacher in rural northeastern China where she was conducting postdoctoral uh, research. Uh, together with her husband and co-founder, Jay Kimmelman, they launched Bridge in 2009 in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, since then, they've grown to over 500 schools, educating over 100,000 pupils across Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, Liberia, and uh, India. Now, their aspiration is nothing less than to educate 10 million children across 12 or more countries by 2025. Uh, along the way, they've attracted significant investment from some of the world's most iconic entrepreneurs and philanthropists, people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. Now, not surprisingly, perhaps, for an education enterprise that aspires to disrupt the educational status quo, an educational status quo that, with good reason, it believes is uh, clearly failing a significant number of children, it has attracted a fair amount of hostility and criticism. Uh, this is something that we addressed in the podcast alongside a discussion on the bridge model and why it may hold the key to solving the challenge of providing quality education to some of the world's poorest communities. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention here that in 2016, WISE recognized Bridge with one of our six annual innovation awards. I give you Shannon May, enjoy the podcast. I'm here with Shannon May. Shannon May, welcome to Wise Words. Thank you, Stavros. Happy to be here. Uh, Shannon, before we get into the substance of our uh, discussion, I think uh, listeners would really be interested to hear uh, your, your backstory and how, how you got started um, as, as an educator. I wonder if you could share a little bit of, uh, of that with us. Yeah, well... A little bit unexpectedly, about 12 years ago, I was required to become a teacher. It had not been in my plans. I was, at the time, an anthropologist working on a large uh, Chinese development program in northeastern China. The day the project kicked off, the governor came up to me and said, actually, if you're going to stay here and you want to do all that other work, you'll first be the teacher in my school. So he walked me over, introduced me to the principal, and said, here's your work unit. So for the next year, I was at the school for three or four hours every day uh, in the morning as the English teacher for third, fifth, and sixth grade. And it was that experience being a teacher, trying to be prepared every day for my lessons, seeing how the other teachers were trying to work in this environment, and seeing the future of the children is what led to Bridge. And because unfortunately, that school, um, through, no, through no one person's specific fault, but through myriad different decisions and things that created um, the environment of that school, it was a, a truly sad school, a place where very little learning happened. Mm -hmm. uh, we had very little access to textbooks at the time. There was no internet in the village. You only had what books were given to you. Many of them were more than 10 years old. And there was very little support for teachers. Half the teachers had never been through any sort of training program, and even the ones who had, some of them had been to training more than 20 years prior, and no one had ever come to see their lessons or help them. And it was encountering that and seeing how the future of these children became darker and darker every year as they fell behind, as they were not learning, and by the end of sixth grade, over half the children who started in grade one drop out of that primary school. And, and this, is, this is in China, just in case uh, uh, listeners might have missed that because of the, um, uh, of, of the sound. So this is, this is northeast uh, China, rural China? Yes, northeast China in Liaoning province, up in a, a pretty mountainous village. Um, and, and that situation was just heartbreaking, right? Seeing 
seeing children who have so much promise, who have so much aspiration, who, when they're five, six, seven years old, have incredible dreams, but by the time they're 10, 11, 12, the only school to which they have access has essentially taught them that they can't achieve their dreams, that they won't be able to participate in larger society, they won't be able to stand up for themselves, and that most opportunities are going to be closed to them. So they leave school and they start, you know, hustling on the side and, you know, apprenticing to things in cities, migrating, or working on the farm. And that experience yeah. was devastating. And this was also the, sorry, this was also the, the topic of your PhD. Uh, you know, you're looking, I think you were, you were studying the modernization of, uh, of rural China and in particular how primary schooling was uh, failing or, or not failing uh, uh, the process? Well, in the, in the end, I did end up looking a bit at education on the side, but it wasn't the original reason I was there. Like the original reason I was there was studying economic development and okay. whether China could urbanize uh, parts of rural China without increasing carbon emissions. I was technically there more as an economist and um, an environmental auditor. <laughs> and looking okay. at, at how this change would happen. But because the governor required that I become the teacher in the school, that became a really core part of my daily experience and definitively shifted what I thought was important. Because as there was this large development program with um, significant national Chinese resources, uh, lots of large industrial players and companies involved, it seemed that they were all missing where the original problem of development was starting. And the original problem was in that primary school. Because a school should be a place of social justice. It should be a place where even if your parents don't know how to read, you will learn how to read, right? The, the intention is it is a radical intervention to make it so a child won't be left behind simply because they can only have access to what their parents have had. But unfortunately, in that school, and then what I saw by doing research across, you know, what data was available across rural China, urban China, and then looking at data globally in sub-Saharan Africa and India, is that unfortunately, hundreds of millions of children, not just the few hundred I was working with in the village in China, but hundreds of millions, go to school, and that school is not a transformative yeah. place. You know, it's not a place that's empowering them um, to achieve their dreams, helping them become literate, comprehend stories, be able to write essays, speak with confidence, master algebra, all of those things that um, those of us who went to good government schools can take for granted. And it was realizing that really the future of this world is going to be built by the children of this generation. And if we yep. leave hundreds of millions of them not only illiterate, but like frustrated that schools should have transformed their life, should have given them the tools they need to stand up for themselves, and it hasn't, that that's, that's a scary yeah. world. So, so if I'm, I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, because what I find interesting about the, the story of, of, uh, uh, of you in China is, is you have a, a, a situation where, I mean, clearly the, the, the principle uh, the, the person who obliged you to become a teacher um, wanted seems to me like he he or, or she wanted to do the right thing and and had the foresight to say hey you know I'm getting you know I'm, I'm getting a potentially valuable resource here you know how how do I use you know this person to to improve the the lot of my kids so you know you, you have a sort of a, a well-meaning school leader in this instance but so what exactly was, in, in your view, going, going wrong there? Yeah, I mean, people can be well-meaning, but not have the tools they need to run a powerful school, um, or could be well-meaning and just kind of get a little bit misaligned. So um, it was actually the governor who, who wanted me in the school. The principal did not originally want me in the oh, school. Oh, okay, sorry, I got um, that part wrong then. But uh, he, he then, accommodated me. Um, 
how to put it so uh well i mean like so every teacher was supposed to create lesson plans and i was given a notebook and given um the teacher textbook for each of the three grades i was teaching and like you know now go prepare your lessons and i sat there it's like okay i'm not an english teacher i've not trained in english as a, as a second subject um, I had taught secondary school, I had taught university uh, students, I had never taught primary school kids, and I was really struggling with how do I best approach structuring a lesson? Where do I even begin? And I didn't even have any of the, the children's assessments from previous years, they hadn't kept any of them. So I was like, wow, where do I start? Um, and that was hard. And I talked with the other teachers about that, and. Uh, what, became, what became a little bit frustrating was only one of them even tried to prepare lesson plans. The other five said that they long ago had stopped bothering because it just took a lot of time and they didn't feel like it helped any and that they um, felt the best way to approach their class was to just walk in the room, open the textbook to where they had bent the page and then just read from the teacher's textbook for the time of the lesson. Mm. And... At first, it was I was like, "Wow, how could how could they not be putting uh, a little more effort into this?" But over the months of my doing this, I appreciated their both the problem they were facing and why they ended up making those sorts of decisions. Right? There's they had very few resources. They only had a teacher textbook. Some classes we didn't have them, and there was no feedback. Like n no one would watch your lesson. The principal never came in to watch your lesson or give you coaching. Um, no one from the rest of the, you know, the government, you know, the, the Ministry of Education, so to speak, within the province. And so these teachers were really left completely by themselves. And yeah. that becomes really hard, both hard to be motivated to keep doing work by yourself all the time, but also you don't even have an example. Like you don't know what a good lesson looks like. You don't know what anyone else is doing. And so it's, it can be really confusing. Like what is even your role as a teacher? What are you supposed to be doing and preparing? And that's what I mean by no one was ill-intentioned. No one wanted to be a bad teacher, but because there was no supervision, no coaching, very little materials, um, this, it became a really, yeah. really bad school. Yeah, the, the circumstances conspired essentially to create uh, uh, a bad a bad situation uh, I, I should also clarify just just in case listeners are, are wondering that that you are fluent in in Mandarin and, and hence were able to, uh, to to have these sort of communications with uh, uh, with with fellow teachers and students uh, now how did you so how how do you go from uh, obviously this was a, a very formative experience uh, for you now, what led you from from this experience to then say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try and uh, and do something about this on a, uh, you know, on a significant scale. Yeah. So, some of that's a, a personal decision. You know, some people, um, you know, look at it and be like, hey, I'm going to put all my energy into just into changing this specific school. And I thought about that, but uh, my partner Jay and I spent a lot of time talking about that and that our real concern was was for the larger system. Because if you change you know, one school, if you, if you make, put all your energy into just this one school in this one village, it doesn't change what's going to happen for a generation. It doesn't change what will happen in economic development or social progress for the region. And all of the, the problems that were going on in the school that led it to be a a very uh, poorly functioning school weren't specific to that school even. They were systemic issues. So we approached it systemically. How, what changes might have to happen so that children who happen to be you know, born in a village like this or born in a city where schools are also struggling, that they don't have to go to a struggling school? What would you have to do? And uh, very early on, there were some really key things that would have to have to happen, right? You have to have a lot of teacher support, but you also have to ensure those teachers have access to 
um, lots of materials and to to kind of best practice lessons and to, to teachers guides so that they have the materials that can help them be a really strong leader in the classroom and to do that like even just that piece of, of really supporting teachers would be very very expensive if all of that R&D and all of that investment was only to support you know one school of you know 200 children and if you wanted to really invest in really transformative teacher support and then the technology to support that and all the materials that the only way to make that affordable to make it a reasonable you know economy is to do that at a very large scale and then hopefully also you're you're transforming the lives not of a hundred children but of hundreds of thousands and that they'll they'll build a different world now that they've had access to to being able to read do algebra debate each other learn about their society and have the confidence to speak up for themselves yeah i mean what you're describing is i guess you know economics 101 in terms of uh economies of of, of scale uh, and and this i guess two two follow-up questions relating to that one is and, and a I'm asking you sort of to to put on your your hat maybe as a, a development economist uh, for a moment. One thing that you know that I've been trying to sort of get get my head around is is there's there's very clearly a correlation between economic development and uh, and education. Um, what I haven't been able to fully uh, work out, and I haven't, you know, I've, I've seen evidence pointing both ways is is how does the causation work? Is it the case that, you know, uh, a better education leads to uh, uh, faster, more sustainable uh, economic development? Or is it the case that you need economic development to then generate, you know, demand for better education? And I, I wonder what, what your view is on, on that. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, my, my view is... Uh, in, the, in the economic research I've been able to read, uh, particularly looking at work that Eric Hanischek, who's an economist out of Stanford, has been doing over the past 30 years, is that you can correlate improved learning to increases in GDP. And part of what he specifically was trying to tease out is that it's not more kids in school more children attending school does not lead to increase in GDP. You actually have to get to more children actually learning, like increasing the knowledge base, and yeah. doing that at a significant level across the nation, right? So not for five, 10 luxury schools or just for the top 10% of the population. The key is when you can get the majority of your population, and in particularly those who are otherwise being left out, you know, those from um, families that are struggling to make it from uh, low resource economic communities, ensuring that all of those children have significant learning gains is what can shift the needle on economic development. And in one of his, his more recent studies, uh, he had some exact numbers. It was that if a country can increase its learning gains by a 0.4 or 0.5 standard deviation, you know, so like a significant shift off of what would have happened mm -hmm. otherwise, that they yep. can increase the GDP by 5%. That's huge. And, yep. and from, an, from a thinking as a development economist point of view, I also think there's something incredibly exciting about that because what it should say to government leaders is, look, like you have the ability, and, and, and Eric's data sets there, he's doing dozens of data sets. It's not like he's looking at one tiny piece, like this is a strong body of research. So the head of a country could look at this and say, maybe I should borrow to actually fund my education system. Maybe I should try to get increase my sovereign spending because I'm going to get more income in 20 or 30 years if I actually invest in the right education initiatives today. And to have more presidents and ministers of education and ministers of finance think of education not just as um, you know, a cost in their budget, but actually an engine of growth for the next generation. Yeah. As an investment. As an investment, exactly. Yeah. 
and and th I think this this sort of leads leads nicely to this the other follow up question I have on on this, which is, you know, as I as I look at the bridge model, um, what one of the things that that distinguishes it is is that you take a very data driven approach uh, to to what you're trying to do, and and I wonder if you can. Um, use this also as a segue now to sort of talk a little bit about the model um, and and what in your view makes it makes it work yeah so internally we think of ourselves as being data-driven designers and where that really comes down to is um, you know some schools would say they have a specific approach right you know they have a Montessori approach or they have a um, a heavy reading approach or they're um, very focused on leadership. They might have different ways they try to articulate uh, perhaps an attitude or a style of the school. And the way we look at it is we are 100% committed to ensuring that children master their national syllabus and build the type of social and emotional skills that are critical for their success, having confidence, being able to speak publicly, uh, believing in themselves, having, you know, grit and stamina. But we don't think there, we, we haven't pre-decided the how of getting there necessarily, other than testing what works and what doesn't and constantly refining those pieces. So one of the ways we do that is, well, I mean, now that we're at such large scale, it's easier than even it was before. We learn a lot faster now than we did five years ago and particularly eight years ago. Uh, now with you know, thousands upon thousands of classrooms, we get information every day about how children are mastering the syllabus according to their quizzes or to their unit tests or to their, um, you know, their end of term tests. We understand a lot about how our teachers are using the materials by um, whether they finish them on time, whether they don't open them, whether um, the class ends and they haven't, you know, you have only gotten through page eight instead of page 15. And we're able to use all of that data to do some really special things. Um, we can change lessons as we see that children aren't mastering, right? So if we've got 40% of kids mm -hmm. who, who miss, you know, who, who get the, the answer on double digit division and correct. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that some of our core way of approaching that topic and how the lesson was structured and other pieces, homework, maybe parts in the book, didn't work for 40% of the kids. And what that actually is a signal is that there's a problem in the content. So then we can, because we digitally publish, each of our teachers uses a tablet that has all of their teaching resources on it. We can publish a new lesson and then actually test you know, now what percentage of those 40% of kids who didn't master this concept, now how many of them have? And that's just one example of how we can iterate on all of the collateral that we use in the classroom. And what's really special about that is, I mean, maybe to take a step back, is, is what's special about that is, is what Bridge does is a really holistic intervention. It's a holistic program inside the school, which is really hard to do and, and previously most school interventions are coming from a specific tangent. You know, you, you might do, yep. um, you, you know, like a group might do teacher training and you know, create an incredible program uh, for teacher training. But now that the teacher is in, in school, that teacher training program has no connection to the school. You know, whether, whether the teacher's behavior has changed, they may not know. Um, if it has changed, they still may not get a report. Um, if the teacher's still following the training six months later, a year later, that teacher training organization you know, may not have any awareness of that or any ability to work with that teacher again. Similarly, you know, most, most book publishers, textbook publishers, you know, they're, they're publishing materials, they're purchased by schools or by, you know, by large entities like, like ministries or large school networks, but they're not getting constant feedback from the school itself on, you know, did, the, did these books work to help the children master the material? But because we can integrate our teacher training, our school management, like the daily work of the school, the timetable, um, the teacher and learner resource materials, and the results of the assessments, 
it's why we call it our learning lab. It's like we're able to constantly mm -hmm. look mm -hmm. at all of those pieces and adjust them to little by little, you know, gain two percentage points here, gain four percentage points there, and constantly be improving on our children's ability to learn and our teacher's ability to support that process. Yeah, I, I had, it's funny because I had jotted down lab school in, as, as, as you were, were speaking. Um, now, to, to what extent does, does this approach depend on, on, on a fairly high level of standardization? And, and I mean, are there any, any downsides uh, in your view to that? So what this approach does depend on to be able to understand what that data, for that data to be useful, you do have to have your, if you want to be comparing practices across hundreds of classrooms, you do need to be supplying those hundreds or thousands of classrooms with the same resources, right? Or else it wouldn't be comparable, Correct. right? Yeah. So you supply yes. them with those same resources. And one of the things that we found, um, but lots of organizations at this point have found, um, like over the past 10 years, there have been numerous studies on People call it different things, scaffolded instruction, structured instruction, scripted instruction, teacher guides, um, done by the Research Triangle Institute, um, done by different programs in the United States, including Success for All, which have shown that giving teachers lesson plans that have been well-researched, that have been tested with other teachers in other classrooms, and have been shown to help children master this material, provides better learning outcomes for children than having tens of thousands of teachers every morning or evening trying to create their lesson themselves. Yeah. And, and I think it's an important thing to kind of pause and think about. I know some people react very strongly like to, to the phrase scripted instruction or to teacher's guides of saying, wait, no, the teachers should be doing that themselves. They need to prepare their lesson. And I think the way it, a good way of thinking about it is, you know, like any other profession and a professional, there are best practices and there are things that are known to work and things that are known to not work. And then there's lots of other things on the edges. You know, but if, if you look at a surgeon or a doctor, like they're taught very specific practices. There's very specific ways a heart surgery should go. Most heart surgeons are doing those exact steps over and over and over again to ensure the success of that heart surgery. That's what a teacher guide is trying to achieve. It's trying to take the best practices of how to teach a child a phoneme or, or how to teach an algebraic equation and not having it be this one young man or young woman all by themselves trying to figure that out, but pooling the best knowledge, research outcomes, and pedagogy into a lesson that then thousands of teachers can use that essentially improves their ability to support these children. So now there's tons of data behind that. So is that too standardized? I think that becomes a question of how the teacher guide is written. So one of the things that we really work on, um, and I think an important thing to think about is when someone says a teacher guide or, or scripted instruction, that doesn't necessarily tell you what's in the lesson, right? It, it tells you that that group, whether that's the Research Triangle Institute or USAID or Bridge, is providing lesson plans for teachers. Well, then the key is take a look at the lesson plan itself. What, what's in it? Like, what is this organization guiding as best practices? And one of the core things that we make sure is in all of our lessons, regardless of subject, is we're really trying to pull the teacher off the board. So the, the teachers that we work with historically and in the other schools they've been working in just before they come to work for us have you know, I mean, they're basically using, uh, you know, stand and deliver instruction or rote instruction, mostly writing things on the board, asking kids to copy it, um, staying very much in the front of the classroom. And it is mostly a teacher led, um, yeah. you know, process. But what a teacher guide actually helps you to do is to disrupt that. We're able to write, we write our guides to try to make it so. Um, between 40 and 60% of the lesson, depending on the subject and the exact topic, is some sort of child-led work, whether that's um, 
quiet one-on-one -on -one work, just the child working on something and the teacher circulating in the room and going and looking at each individual child's work, helping them, solving problems. We also do what we call turn-in talks where we'll have children matched up with one or two other children. And this, the guide will tell the teacher, okay, now we're going to do turn-in talk. Have each child sit with the other two or yeah. three other children next to them, give them this assignment to work on together, circulate around the room, give direct coaching advice for children. And if they're getting it right, move them to the challenge problem. If they're getting it wrong, go over it again. So the guide is actually creating a non-standardized environment, right? Where now we have mm -hmm. five, six, yep. seven different groups of kids working on something. They're all working on the same set of problems, right? But their conversation is spontaneous. The conversation of the teacher to the child as they see the work is spontaneous. But the key thing is that the teacher guide or the lesson plan told the teacher to behave in that way, pulled them away from the board, and had them actually create this group activity. And we find that that's super important and is part of, I think, how we drive learning gains is by using guides to change the previous habits of our teachers and making sure they have you know, factual, factually correct and uh, robust plans that should be successful in helping children master the content. Yeah, no, and, and by the way, I mean, I, I, I use the term standardization not necessarily as a, uh, as a critique, although having now um, uh, listened to you, I, I mean, I can see there, you know, there, there's a, sort of a couple of, um, you know, philosophical almost clashes going on in, in the sense that, you know, you, you have a, a, a movement that, you know, very sort of firmly believes in in the idea of, you know, of, of personalized learning. Every child is different. Every child is, um, you know, uh, learns at their own pace and, uh, you know, different approaches work for different kids. Um, and then, and that's sort of coming into conflict with, you know, uh, another school that actually says, well, you know what, at, at a certain fundamental level, you know, where all kids are, are, are similar and they learn in similar ways. And that's where you get, you know, this idea of, you know, of, of best practices. Now, neither, neither side, you know, has to be completely right or, 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 uh, 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 you know, for, uh, for this, um, uh, in a sense, conflict to, to occur. Um, you know, and then also, you know, that there's another dispute over, you know, over the role of, you know, of the teacher. You know, you, uh, you know, described uh, heart surgery. There, there's another school, though, that sees perhaps, you know, one might call it the, the romantic school of, of teaching, which is, you know, the teacher is a sort of independent professional uh, that sort of needs to be trusted to figure out, you know, what works best for, you know, uh, for that particular uh, context. Um, it seems to me, though, that you're, you know, you're making an effort to, in a sense, reconcile, um, you know, these these uh, conflicting visions, but also to address, I think, you know, the, the reality of uh, of the situation that that you find yourself operating in. I don't know if you want to say a little bit about uh, about that. Yeah, I mean, we. Um, I mean, I appreciate how you're bringing all that together, and I think there are different notions of of a teacher, um, and sometimes, I mean, there are different ways people put this. You know, you talk of the romantic notion, or of the, uh, you can say it's the romantic notion of the teacher who's in their room, who's 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 the sage, who's going to um, every day in that class create the symphony of learning, right? And that's it's a beautiful yeah. it's a beautiful picture. Um, what I think we have to realize, though, is, is how often does that happen? Even for, how often is there such a teacher? Yeah. How often is there such a person who truly has that, has that gift to, in the moment, be creating a symphony of learning and have the wealth of knowledge at their fingertips across six, seven subjects? And every day, create that symphony 
and do that for 200 teaching days a year. I, I'm sure there are some teachers who have that gift. But what the world is facing is the problem of hundreds of thousands of teachers not having it and yeah. needing support. And, and I think that shouldn't be surprising, right? And, and I, don't think, I don't think that deprofessionalizes teachers at all. Like I think yeah. part of being a professional is learning skills. It's mastering certain practices. And as you master them, your own judgment of, of how to deal in the gray areas, how to deal with the unexpected, hopefully grows and becomes stronger. Um, but that's why it's like in any profession, right? Like there's extensive mm -hmm. preparation, right? So that you know how to behave. So you learn those best practices. And I've been, I've been in so many classrooms around the world from uh, Liberia, Nigeria, Tanzania, Malawi, China, Kenya, Uganda, all over India. And the majority of teachers working in government schools and in affordable uh, private schools are desperately seeking for more guidance. Like they're seeking for support. Like they want more coaching. They want more resources. They want someone to help them do a good lesson. Like, you know, having been a teacher and now talking to thousands of them, the most depressing thing as a teacher, in my experience, is when you feel like your lesson failed. When you're like, oh my goodness, I did this and like no one understands. Like the kids do not understand. And like that was my fault because it was my lesson. And I'm supposed to be here and teaching them and I'm getting them nowhere. And the most exciting thing is when you're like, it worked. It worked and you see it like day after day and you can see progress and you see like kids who couldn't read now being able to like know all their letter sounds and then getting their phonemes right and blending and then, oh my goodness, he read the book to me, right? Like that's, that's this, this mm -hmm. journey of a teacher. And I think what we need to be doing when we think about teacher support is how do we help all teachers be on a journey of success, a journey where their professional development is actually resulting in children learning. And unfortunately, the, like the alternative, the day-to-day -day right now across most of the developing world is that teachers aren't getting that support. Well, I think just to, I mean, to, just to come in, Shannon, and I'm, I'm sorry if I, if I sometimes seem to be uh, cutting you off. I'm, it's because I'm not, uh, able to see you. I, I don't know when <laughs> is a good time to come in. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, I mean, I also like the, the, uh, uh, the, the surgeon or the doctor analogy um, for another reason, because, you know, you wouldn't expect or you wouldn't want your surgeon to be practicing, you know, uh, surgery uh, only based on what he, you know, what he learned at, at medical school. You'd actually want that you know, individual to be updating their, uh, their knowledge um, almost in real time with, you know, with developments and, um, uh, you know, the new, new science and that, that's uh, informing the practice. And, and in education, it seems to me that we, uh, we don't have enough, you know, enough of that happening updating of skills, you know, incorporating new findings, incorporating new science. Um, uh, and, and it seems to me that you're trying to do some of that. We definitely are trying to do, we're trying to do a lot of it. Hopefully we'll succeed at some of it. The, I mean, like there are a couple things that go against making that easy, I think, in education. So, oh, I mean, I mean, the first thing is how often are you willing to publish? Right, so, so most print publishers print a new edition every four or five years. So when, like from a print point of view, uh, education tends to have a long lag time. It's one of the reasons we've moved to digital publishing, so that we can much faster um, find, you know, take in, in, take in actionable guidance from big data, from seeing everything that's happening inside our classrooms, and create new lessons in response to both you know, what we see in assessments, but also from direct teacher feedback. 
And I think that's one of the things that uh, kind of our integrated system has enabled that, that's hard in a lot of other systems, which is we take feedback from our teachers in, in multiple ways. They can both send us messages via their tablets. We have a, um, a care line that they can call, right? And like, it's awesome when we get calls about like, there's a typo on page 27, right? Or like, I think maybe there could be two right answers to answer 82, you know, question 82. And then our team's able to talk with these teachers and it's really important that there's that two-way flow, both from just these minute things, right? But then as we see learning mastery across you know tens of thousands of kids we're able to see which lessons work which ones don't um, and have that feedback and have that change both our teacher training and our actual materials and i guess i mean i guess the thing that i find frustrating often in education is sometimes when people want to hold on so tightly um, to this romantic notion of you know, a teacher in her classroom and everything she should be doing on her by herself. It's like they miss, it, that kind of forecloses the opportunity to treat education as a science, as something yeah. where we can learn how children learn. We can learn best practices about how teachers teach. We can learn what written materials achieve which goals. Um, to give a really specific example, um, now that we're at, at you know serving you know a large scale of, of teachers and children, we're able to do a lot of internal A versus B testing or like small randomized control trials mm -hmm. on really specific pedagogy questions. Um, you know, so we so there's been questions out there like in the literature about whether it's better for children to have open book tests or closed book tests. You know, it seems like a, a somewhat small question, but like it's important for, for children's learning. Like which one actually helps the child truly comprehend these concepts, particularly concepts that maybe they are foundational, right? So they need to internalize them and not have to always go to the book. So we did a small A versus B test across hundreds of schools, grade seven science, and um, half the classes had a different lesson. The teacher guide was structured differently, gave different instruction to the teacher, and the kids essentially were taking open book tests. And then the other half, different guide, different instruction to the teacher, and those children didn't have access to their textbooks during the test. And we were able to run that over the course of a year and then actually measure in a statistically significant way which practice led to more learning, which is really exciting. And then we can bring that yeah. back to you know, to all of our other subjects. And it did turn out that it was better to do closed book tests. Um, but we do all sorts of things like that, like how to teach work problems in mathematics, even the length of time of a lesson, you know, should a, is a lesson more effective in leading to comprehension if it's 35 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, we've also done kind of more complicated things around peer tutoring. But yeah. you would only even attempt these sorts of things if, you thought you could measure learning and you were willing to change your practice based on what you found. And to do that, you have to start from the position that education should be treated as a science and that it should be a profession that is always learning and growing and bettering itself rather than being yep. teachers kind of on their own in a room. Yeah. Let's, let's talk if, if, uh, if you don't mind now about another distinguishing feature about about bridge which is that that you are a for-profit organization can you can you talk a little bit about about that and about you know is is first of all is the model financially sustainable um and and again speak a little bit about the rationale behind why you set up set this up as a for-profit instead of, say, a, a, a non-profit or a, or a social enterprise? Well, I'd first say we are a social enterprise. I'm not sure if that's a difference in English between possibly American English and British English. But, but like in America, for example, a social enterprise is a business that has a social goal where like its core mission or its core service or its core product is trying to make a significant development impact. 
So from an American point of view, in America, we're definitively called a social enterprise. Um, we are named Social Entrepreneurs by the World Economic Forum. So I'd, I'd put that there, right? Okay. So we're definitely in, yeah. in that sphere um, and are widely known for being an incredibly mission-driven organization. But so, so why structure as a for-profit? I mean, I guess first, maybe just to highlight before we go into why we did it specifically, that there are many, many, many for-profit education organizations out there. Um, like what we do is actually not that unusual from that point of view. Uh, there's Nord Anglia, there's GEMS, um, there are tens of thousands of, of sole proprietorships, schools being run, you know, everywhere from Nigeria to India, you know, by individual entrepreneurs. Um, Beacon House in Pakistan. I mean, there, there are so yeah. many. Um, I, I, so it actually doesn't I, I think make us very special, right? It's just part of, yeah. you know, a whole, a whole big industry of service. But I think it is yeah. still an interesting question why, what led us to think about it this way. If I can just clarify my point, uh, Shannon, here, I think what, what I, I, I should have said that you're a, you're a for-profit seeking to serve some of the poorest uh, of, uh, and most marginalized communities. I think that, that part is maybe what's, uh, what's, what's distinctive. Okay, uh, so let's go from there. So I think that is also what makes us a social enterprise, right? Like we're actually trying yeah. to serve families who are struggling to make it. Um, similar to hundreds of thousands of other sole proprietorships, you know, families and entrepreneur who runs one school, whether that's in Hyderabad or in Nairobi or in Lagos. Yeah. But there are, there are some really important reasons why we are structured this way. First is that in order to really invest in um, the R&D to create a powerful school system, you have to be able to do a lot of research on how children learn, both from the point of view of teachers, from the point of view of children in the classroom, all of the technology to support that. We write all of our own software and creating all of those systems. If you're going to do that, you have to have a lot of capital. And if you look at how most nonprofits are financed, they don't, it, it's very hard for nonprofits to raise R&D capital, to raise capital that's about trying to answer a question, that's to do core research. Most um, capitalization for nonprofits comes for specific operational programs, right? Like you're raising funding or the donor gives you funding to do a specific thing, like just run this school. But we were looking to do something different, which is actually do all the R&D in creating the systems that would enable thousands of schools to be strong, powerful, and transformational. And that would require a lot of upfront capital. The way that financial markets are structured, one of the easiest ways to do that is to go to shareholders, create a shareholder base that finance a company's ability to create a service. So that, that's one thing, right? Just like the limits mm -hmm. of capital. And as you get to, um, as you get even larger, it's like you need to be able to access strong financial markets to be able to take out loans, to be able to continue to finance the cash flow, to be able to continue all of this research and continue all of the school delivery. And so we just found it the, the easiest way to raise the capital needed to do the work. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, and again, without, without wanting to sort of get into, into definitional uh, issues, I, I mean, my understanding of, of uh, a social enterprise is uh, an organization that is not uh, uh, driven by the need to maximize uh, returns to shareholders. That, you know, the, in a sense, the social mission uh, takes precedence and the, the sort of return on capital uh, invested is there to, uh, to to meet a certain baseline need, uh, you know, to to allow for the things that you're you're talking about. Um, but again, I I you know I, I don't want to spend too long on this. But, but uh, so Stavros, by that definition, uh, on, on this issue, we, yeah. we certainly are a social enterprise. Maybe that's yeah. why I'm confused, right? Like, so a social yeah. enterprise isn't um, is putting its social mission first, which is exactly what yeah. we do. So where where would the confusion be? No, no, it's it's I'm 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 just saying my uh, uh, 
my confusion is that the comes from the literature or or the uh, stories that I read. What's really emphasized about bridge is that you're a for profit, um, and and that and that to my mind implies profit maximization. Yeah. Yeah, but so Stavros, so, I'm really glad you're, you're you're pushing on this topic because I think. I think that's the problem about how other people describe bridge, right? Other people with their yeah. own motivations are trying mm -hmm. to push a specific angle. When we keep saying of course, we're a social enterprise, we're widely recognized as that. Um, at conferences around the world, we're highlighted as one of the largest social enterprises delivering on incredible impact. And I think people who are trying to, I mean, it goes to one of these touchy areas in education. I, there are those folks who, who don't think there should be any uh, how to put it? Some, some people would say no non-state yeah. actors should be in education at all. Yeah. It should only be delivered by the state. Other folks would say no, it should only be non-profits. Um, but where we stand is, <laughs> given, given the state of education in the world today, I yeah. would hope that we all want as many institutions and as much capital as possible working to solve this problem. I mean, if we look at the GPE trying to raise $4 billion this week, we're looking at, you know, the World Bank's trying to get more money from their partner countries as well. It's like, we need more money being spent in education, not less. Being structured as a social enterprise, which we are, which does mean we can take on shareholders, does mean that those shareholders yep. will expect return from their capital. But those shareholders who are shareholders in Bridge are here for the development impact and many of them have requirements that they can only invest in social enterprises. And again, presumably they'd be willing to accept a lower return, you know, on the on the understanding that um, your money gets reinvested, it, it you know, it goes to benefit uh, the social mission. Yeah, I mean, none of our shareholders have taken any capital out of the organization. There's been no dividends. There's been no capital return. Yeah. They're all putting the capital in to help help us work for more children, to partner with more governments, to, to yeah. be a service provider. And that, that's the real goal is how mm. is how to all how how to have all of that working financially sustainably. And so yeah. I mean I, I mean I just sometimes when people get super picky out there, you know, about like, oh like are there for profits in education? It's like, let's just, let's see if the work is good. And please, let's get more people working. Let's get more yeah. capital at play. Like, it, you know, when people pick on this, I find it really fascinating because it's, well, and, and again, go to going back to the GPE issue, right? So the GPE is struggling to get $4 billion to fund education for their next, you know, for their yeah. next round. Health. Well, I mean, health, to, to, health to, gets yeah. billions upon yeah. billions, right? You know, like yeah. they do not have a problem raising capital. But part of that is because there are lots of organizations, there are lots of organizations involved in health that are treating health as a science, they're doing lots of R&D, they're creating vaccines, they're creating different interventions, and they have shareholders, right? So people are willing to put capital to play into a really important development area but because they can get some return. And I think yeah. to say, hey, in education, there should never be any financial return for anyone ever, would essentially mean that so little capital will come to education to try to solve problems. And perhaps historically, that's been part of the problem, right? Like that essentially yeah. much, much of the world turns its back on trying to solve problems in education because they don't see how they can be involved. Yeah, and, and they, they have, I guess, uh, for better or for worse, uh, not a whole lot of uh, assurance about, you know, how uh, efficiently and how well their funding is going to be used. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the reality. Um, I, I, we, we've, Shan, we've sort of touched on, and the reason I, I, I pushed you a little bit on, on this issue as well as the issue of, you know, standardization is, these have tended to be the two main critiques that I've come across of, you know, of, of, of the bridge model, and and we're in a sense at the heart of of some of the controversy. Do you, do you want to say a little bit about you know the, the the controversies you know from from your perspective? 
what was behind it how you know how are you managing uh the politics because it, it did strike me that as as um as a as a very political issue uh, uh both in the case of Kenya as well as uh, uh Uganda yeah so the 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 last topic we were on you know being a social enterprise and whether you know education organizations that are structured with shareholders you know whether that's controversial I've actually found in the countries in which we work, it's not controversial at all. Like, governments expect that service providers often are structured with shareholders and you have to return capital. So that hasn't really been an issue. I think sometimes these issues are, how to put it, like like when there are debates happening in the UK or the US, so -hmm. that then they frame what's happening in uh, Liberia through the frame of US or UK politics, when, like, specifically, you know, everyone from President Sirleaf to Minister Warner, you know, specifically said, we don't understand what you guys are talking about, about this for profit, non profit thing. Like, we just need good schools and we need to work with people with strong data and strong reputations on delivery. And if they're, it, you know, if the program is that by 2020 everyone gets paid $50 a kid, why do we care what their tax status is? instead of just, we want people who can deliver against this metric. So, yeah. so I think like the, that kind of social enterprise, profit, nonprofit, I mean, it's interesting because it, it often kind of comes at us, like it surprises us at bridge, like it comes at us from an angle. Cause we're like, whoa, where's that coming from? Since it, mm. it really isn't an issue within the countries that, that we work in. The, the issue on standardization and um, yeah, Kenya and Uganda. So I find it, I find it, fascinating um i think how that's developed so oh i mean one of the things we didn't talk about in in such detail was um the importance of accountability and and that's really important um in how to have a powerful school so to go even all the way back to when i was in that village school in northeast china um yeah no one came and watched our lessons right so no one's helping us get better but at the same time, no one really took attendance and no one really cared if we were there or not anyway. So um, significant absenteeism, you know, there'd be a wedding. Teachers go to that instead of coming to school. You feel like doing, you might need to do some work on your farm. You do that instead of coming to school. Um, it was cold. People got drunk. They didn't come to school. Um, yep. And nothing happened. And what you see in unfortunately across many uh, government schools is that there's not yet enough accountability to give teachers the right um, support to encourage them to treat their job as a professional job and to be there every day you know and so these statistics are widely widely known from the world bank um, where they do their service delivery indicators you know, the last one they did in Kenya showed that um, 16% of teachers were not even on campus when they were supposed to be during scheduled teaching time. And another 31%, although they were there, they weren't teaching. They were not, in, not participating in any active teaching. So 47% altogether of teaching time was lost due to teacher absenteeism so, or yeah. neglect. Uganda so is almost uh, half. Yeah, almost That's, half. And in Uganda, yeah. it's more than half. In Uganda, it's 56%. Wow. So, but at, at Bridge, it's less than 1%. So now how do we do that? Well, we take teacher attendance every day. If you don't arrive on time, we send you, a, we send you an automated SMS to your cell phone and a message to your teacher tablet saying, you know, you're late for school, your children need you, it is such a privilege to be here. We are expecting you, you know, if, if you are ill, please mm-hmm. call the care line to report your illness. So we are actively managing them. And then if they don't show up still, then we send them a message that, you know, you have an unexcused absence. Like you were supposed to be at work today. You did not report in sick. This is an unexcused absence. And then we follow up with that. And if that happens um, repeatedly, according to Kenyan labor law, we're able to relieve that teacher from duty. And so we, and we do do that. Well, you're treating people like professionals, and, and I, what, what surprises me in 
uh, in many discussions I have about professionalism in in education, there's there's you know a lot of emphasis given to uh, the you know the the positives, if you will, which is yes, by all means, trust you know trust the the, the individual to know what they're supposed to be doing and and so on. But but very little discussion on what the responsibilities are, and as you say, the you know what the accountability is if you know, if, if you're not uh, delivering. Yeah. And so, it, you know, knowing how bridge manages and professionalizes its teachers and puts in systems of accountability. Now to some people, it might be more clear why over the past two years, we've been under incredibly hostile attacks from the Kenyan and Ugandan teachers union, because I've even been in a meeting where the then head of the Ugandan Teachers Union a year ago was riling up the union membership in Uganda and saying, if we don't get bridge shut down, the government may adopt some of these methods and you will all lose your jobs. And what I thought was so Mm -hmm. horrible about that is, is that this union leader was assuming that all of his union members didn't actually want to be teaching, that they preferred absconding or neglecting their duties and so that if there ever was a performance management system that came in they would all be fired instead of thinking that you know the majority of his membership wants to be a good teacher wants to have support wants to be proud of their work and is looking for more resources to support them Um, and I think this has played out you know over the past 30 years in U.S. education politics as well you know, where, yeah. where many teachers, like the actual adults in the classroom, are seeking. I mean, they, they're seeking for ways to be better at their work. And it's not always aligned with the stance that union leadership takes. And, um, and there were some really ugly things that happened in Uganda. Um, I mean, one of the ways that, one of the very false things that was said to try to uh, besmirch our reputation, which is, I mean, such a horrible thing to say, you know, because of the incredible, um, because of specific Ugandan uh, stances about homosexuality, mm-hmm. to, to, yeah. to call, um, to, to claim that a school is teaching homosexuality is probably the worst thing you could possibly do. It's this, you're trying to essentially yeah. make them untouchable. Brainwash. Right. Yeah, well, and you're trying to make the school like persona non grata, you know, that you that yeah. this school should not be allowed in Uganda because of that. And it what it it was so shocking to our team because it, it just so highlighted um, <laughs> the importance of our work and how doggedly folks who are trying to resist professionalization in schools, professionalization of teachers, how far they might go to just try to mudsling. And it was really shocking. But thankfully, one of the really great things that happened was a lot of um, union members within the Ugandan um, union send their kids to Bridge. So because they think that Bridge runs a strong, powerful school and they haven't yet been able to reform their own government school to have more of these, to have some of these other resources. So the union membership itself wrote back. And through doing that, and lots of public support and MPs and um, lots of you know, big civil society influencers coming out and saying, hey guys, you know, these kids are doing so well, these schools are so strong that that clearly must be a false accusation. So we did finally get through that, but it was really, um, it was really shocking to us to, to see like the, the, the real push, particularly in UK press, to try to, to push that narrative. But thankfully in the end, um, the communities won out, our teachers won out, the kids won out, and those kids actually just sat the national exam in Uganda for the very first time. And uh, did amazing. We had 100% of children in Uganda pass the, the primary leaving exam. Um, they were from a rural area in eastern Uganda called Busoga, which tends to be the worst performing area in Uganda. Uh, we had more than twice the number of children get Division One and Division Two scores as the national average. And I think that's just a testament to 
to the support we give our teachers and to you know how we follow the Ugandan curriculum and how much these kids can do if they're given the opportunity to go to a good school. Shannon, I, I, I feel like we, we could spend a lot longer on, on this topic and maybe maybe we should do another another podcast uh, somewhere down the line to to speak specifically about uh, about the politics of education because I think I think this is this is a, a topic that will have resonance uh, you know well beyond uh, uh, the, the specific uh, experience that that, uh, that you've had uh, as you rightly say I mean it's interesting how this has kind of spilled over into certainly UK and US you know conversations about uh, about education uh, we are coming up for for time so I I just want to uh, end uh, our our very interesting discussion at least or should we say pause it you know for uh, uh, for the moment just by asking you the uh, the question that we ask all uh, guests on uh, on the podcast which is you know if there's one area of, of knowledge that you would want everyone in the world to uh, to possess uh, and to acquire through education, what would that be? I'm pausing something about how to put it, but it would be the self-confidence to believe in yourself. Like, I mean, that has yeah. to be based on lots of other skills. Like, you can't be self-confident if you can't read or you can't do basic math. You have to have already master yeah. these basic skills, but I think the true sense of an individual who's had a transformative education is, do they believe in themselves now? Are they confident that whatever they think in their mind, they can try to apply themselves to accomplish? Yeah. And so that's where I would want every child to get to, 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 see, to feel that self-confidence and that self-ambition. Shannon May, thank you for being on Wise Words. Thanks so much, Davros. It's been great.